During the reign of Mary Tudor, um, also known as Bloody Mary, for her persecution of Protestant Christians uh, on the British Isle, a chaplain at the castle of St. Andrews um, in Scotland named John Knox wrote a, a work titled, The First Blast of the Trumpet Against the Monstrous Regiment of Women. It was essentially a work that said that there should not be a woman on the throne. This was a work that haunted him when the Protestant Elizabeth I ascended the throne. John Knox was a polemical type of preacher. He was one who stirred up emotions in his listeners who either loved him or hated him. There were very few in between. And his polemical preaching and writing both, frequently got him into trouble with the authorities, and he was exiled from his beloved Scotland about three times. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote this of John Knox. He said, was John Knox like one of the people? Was John Knox a matey, friendly, nice chap with whom you could have a discussion? Thank God he was not. Scotland would not be what she has been for four centuries if John Knox had been that kind of man. Can you imagine John Knox having tips and training as to how he should conduct and comport himself before the television camera so as to be nice and polite and friendly and gentlemanly? Thank God prophets are made of stronger stuff. An Amos, a Jeremiah, a John the Baptist in the wilderness with his camel hair shirt, a, a straight... Excuse me, a strange fellow, a lunatic, they said. But they went and listened to him because he was a curiosity. And they listened and were convicted. Such a man as John Knox with the fire of God in his bones and in his belly. He preached as they all preached, with fire and power, alarming sermons, convicting sermons, humbling sermons, converting sermons, and the face of Scotland was changed. The greatest epic in Scotland's long history had begun, Lloyd-Jones writes. See, Knox's time in exile shaped him and his ministry. His third exile was spent in Geneva, where he was learning theology and serving under John Calvin. His second exile, if you could put it that way, was spent in England, where he was ordained into the ministry and became well-known throughout the English church. But it was his first exile that really shaped his ministry and shaped him. See, he had been captured by the French when they took St. Andrews. And he was condemned to serve as a galley slave on a French warship. That meant that he was chained to a rowing bench in the belly of the ship. And he spent his days just simply rowing. Knox later spoke. He said it, called it torment in the galleys which brought, brought forth sobs in my heart. He was released after 19 months, which was rare. Most galley slaves were only released when they were dead. Um, yet during those 19 months, he contracted a kidney infection, stomach ulcers, uh, suffered from frequent fevers, and all of these were ailments that troubled him for the rest of his life. Yet this one-time galley slave and oft-hated preacher was used by God to transform a nation and, and birth a new movement that still influences us today. 
It's known as Presbyterianism. Some of you may know Presbyterians. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, in our um, habit of working through books of the Bible, we sometimes come to passages that are um, maybe we would want to avoid in other circumstances if we were just sort of preaching topically about hot topics that hit us. And this for me at least, might be one of those passages. But we preach through books of the Bible, so here we go. Let me read this. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Let's stop and pray. Father, I pray that you would speak to us through your word today. Help us to... um, to understand, give us ears to hear. Father, I do pray that I would decrease and that Christ would increase, that we might be focused completely on you. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. This passage and this, really this sermon, um, is written as much to me as it is to you. Uh, Paul is addressing the Corinthian congregation. He's talking to the church at Corinth, a church uh, that he had planted But all of us need to be reminded of what he is saying here, of really the nature, the true nature of ministers. John MacArthur, in his sermon on this passage, and I was very much helped by a sermon that he preached in 1975 on this passage. He said this of these five verses. He said, this is the the guideline or standard by which the minister is to minister. These five verses. And so one preliminary observation before we get into this that we need to remember is that Paul is confronting the Corinthian church's divisiveness. They're they're, um, forming factions around their favorite teachers. He's confronting them uh, over those divisions. Remember in chapter 1, verses 10 and 12, he had said this. In verse 10 he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. And then in verse 12 he says, what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. And so as we remember this, that he's confronting this, it should also be obvious that not only did they pick their favorite teacher, but they also seem to have been critical of the others. That's sort of the nature of picking favorites, right? Um, This is kind of a crude analogy, but think of the last kid chosen on the team in gym class. Whether we intend to send a message to that kid or not, he receives a message, right? When I was a youth pastor, several churches from Ohio and Michigan would um, get together and we'd put on a week-long summer camp for our students over at Kenyon College by 
near Mount Vernon in Gambier, Ohio. We always brought in a couple of speakers, one for the high school group, one for the middle school group, and then a band to lead in uh, worship. And in the afternoons, we would have a series of topical breakout sessions for the students that several of the youth pastors or other youth leaders would lead. But one of the challenges that we always faced was that we knew that there would be certain kind of cool, popular leaders that would gather the most students, while others might not have anybody show up, even if their topic was incredibly important and they were, and they were adequate teachers. We would hear things like, I don't want to go to Dana's session about growing up in a broken home. He's boring. I want to go hear Jason talk about finding God in Fight Club or something like that. And that's pretty much what's going on in Corinth, except, and I want to be clear about this, Paul is clear that all of the teaching, at least from those four names that he has mentioned, that, he's hearing, that they're hearing from those men, is biblical. It's revealed truth. Paul and Apollos and Cephas, who is Peter and, and even Christ himself. And it's interesting to note here that for, for some who heard this letter, that is, some of those whom Paul is rebuking here in the city of Corinth, in the church of Corinth, they evidently did not repent, and they even used this letter as fuel for their criticism fire. In fact, in 2 Corinthians, he spends three whole chapters defending his own ministry, even quoting his own critics in, in 2 Corinthians 10.10 when he says this, he writes, For they say, that is his critics, his letters, speaking of Paul, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. Yeah, he can write, but why would we follow such a lousy preacher, is what they say of the Apostle Paul. And I, can, I tell you this, to say that pastors will always have their critics. Some within the church and some without. And again, John MacArthur was very encouraging to me on this point. Listen to what he said. One of the very popular games that people play in the church, among many games, is the game of evaluating the pastor. All kinds of criteria have been offered as a standard for who is to be the most honored pastor and who is to be tops and the bottom and why so-and-so is better than the other, and so forth. There are even institutions that give special honors to the people who fit their criteria. And I suppose that because ministers are in the public eye and because we're always up front, it's tempting to rate and rank them, and the game then is very common. Ministers are generally ranked by the following criteria. The size of their church, the ability of their staff, the size of their staff, the style of their preaching, the degrees they've received academically, the books they have written, the particular scriptural emphasis that is associated with them, their popularity with the people, their social status, etc., etc. And on this basis, we all, I think, MacArthur says, are tempted to rate and rank ministers. And then he says this, And may I hasten to add that all of this is offensive to God. All of it. And in this passage, that is 1 Corinthians 4, verses 1 to 5, Paul discusses the issue of evaluating ministers, and it is a very important text and is highly instructive for us. And I would say, for you and me both. 
Matthew Henry writes in his commentary on this, he said, in our opinion of ministers, as well as with all other things, we should be careful to avoid extremes. The people of Corinth seem to love one and disregard the others. This Apollos, he is not like Peter. Man, that guy, that guy could preach. This letter is written because there's so many problems in the church of Corinth. You'd think that the issues that Paul will confront, even in the next few chapters, um, might even be more important than this. Issues of, of the church actually celebrating immorality, of idolatry in the church, spiritual gifts and all of the issues that can arise through that, through that. of church members who are actively suing each other, of getting drunk on the communion wine while others go without. You would think that these would be the issues that Paul would go after first, but he doesn't. In, instead, he goes after the root issue. And he's already spent, remember, he's already spent three chapters addressing this idea of division. But he's still going after it. It's likely that all of the other problems at Corinth contributed to the problem of division. You can imagine that pretty easily. But this is the issue that Paul deals with really all the way through chapter 4 because Satan loves to divide the church, does he not? Satan loves to divide the church. He loves to divide families. He loves to divide marriages. He loves to divide the church. And their division really can be seen in two areas. The exaltation of human wisdom and the exaltation of human leaders. This church is fighting over opinions and people. Think of this for a moment. What they are doing, it was evaluating the teachers that were given to them by God. And in their estimation, some of those God-given teachers were not measuring up. What does that say about their attitude toward God? And so Paul is continuing to push them to put this sin to death. And so he turns now to how they should actually view these teachers, these ministers. Look at verse 1. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Notice that Paul is putting all of them in the same category. He just says us. This is how one should regard us. Now, we don't know that the list from uh, back in chapter 1, verse 12 of those four, we, do, we don't know that it's all-inclusive. You know, Apollos and Cephas or, or Peter, Paul and Christ. We don't know that there are exactly four divisions in the church. There might be more, maybe there are people who, we, we don't know what's going on there, other than there are at least these four divisions. But I find it interesting that, that up until this point, one of the us, one of the leaders that they were dividing over was Christ himself. Do we not regard Christ as, as higher than the others? Of course we do. We worship Christ. Paul makes that point. Nobody was baptized in my name. It's clear here that for the others, for Apollos and Cephas and Paul and all of the preachers after them, they're merely servants of Christ. That's what he says here in verse 1. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. So servants of Christ. Now, we cannot divorce this from chapter 3. 
this comment, this verse, this passage. See, as we saw last week, when, when believers assemble together, they make up the temple of the Holy Spirit. And now Paul is connecting the ministers. So in this case, all who preach and, and teach God's word. He's connecting them to the assembly. But they are servants of Christ. Not merely servants of the assembly, yet they are servants nonetheless. One commentary said, The apostles themselves were not to be overvalued, for they were ministers, not masters, stewards, not lords. And though they were servants of the highest rank, they were still servants of Christ who were given the responsibility and the care of their master's household. Paul will tell the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, 28, this is very simple. He puts it like this, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. This continues for, for pastors and, and elders today, overseers. In the preaching of the gospel, in the proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ, we have been uh, instructed to provide rest for the weary, to provide food for the hungry, comfort for the afflicted, the assurance of forgiveness for the repentant. We're called to do this through the ordinary means of grace. Specifically, we do this through prayer and ministry of the word. We do this through, through word and sacrament, coming to the table, watching and listening and hearing the, the waters of baptism as we see somebody publicly proclaim their trust and faith in Christ. This task continues for all who have been called, all who have been given to the church for this purpose. Now, I said this earlier, although I'm not sure you caught it, but there are certain officers of the church who have been given to the church as a gift by Jesus Christ himself for a specific purpose. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 and 8 puts it like this. Paul tells the Ephesians, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. And then down in verses 11 and 12, he identifies some of those gifts and their purpose. And he gave, that is Jesus, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. And so when the church at Corinth rejected some of these men, or at least downplayed some of these men, they were rejecting or downplaying the gift that Christ had given to them. Or really, they were picking and choosing the ones they wanted to keep. But lest you think Paul has too high of an opinion of himself, that he is God's gift to the church, or the same could be said for me, notice that he says that they are merely servants of Christ. Servants. Back in chapter 3, verse 5, he'd already brought this up. He says this, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. That's chapter 3, verse 5. And there, that word for servant is where we get the word 
deacon. It's diakonos is the Greek word. It's where we get the word deacon. In our day, we have pretty much come to the conclusion that the deacons in the church serve by making sure the physical needs of the saints are met in whatever way that looks like, right? But here he uses a different Greek word for servant. Here in chapter 4, verse 1, when he says, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ, it's not the word diakonos, it's not deacon, it's hyperites. And the literal definition of this is under rower. Under rower. This is the idea of John Knox being a galley slave on a ship. He's chained to the bench, constantly rowing. These are the guys in the depths of the ship, doing the work that no one else would ever want to do, with no relief, just pushing and pulling. That's what they're doing. They're just pushing and pulling. They can't even see the horizon. These are the servants who are so deep in the belly of the ship that they don't even have the, they don't even have the momentary satisfaction of their oars coming up out of the water. They're meeting resistance whether they're heaving or hoeing. <laughs> they're meeting resistance whether they're pushing or pulling. And even though uh, he doesn't use this word, Jesus had hinted at this idea of servanthood Back in Mark chapter 10, verses 42 to 45, listen to this passage. Jesus called them, that is his disciples, to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And Paul says, we are galley slaves for Christ. We're in the belly of the ship, back and forth, back and forth. There is more to this because he doesn't leave them down there in the depths of the, of the ship. He also calls them stewards of the mysteries of God. Stewards of the mysteries of God. A steward is someone who supervised a large estate. Think of a property manager or, or really a chief of staff. In New Testament times, the steward ran the master's estate. He cared for the property and the animals. He supervised all of the other laborers. He oversaw the, the purchase of the necessary supplies and equipment that would be needed on the estate. But he always served under the oversight of the owner of the estate and generally was himself um, a servant, maybe an indentured servant. But as Matthew Henry said of ministers, he said, they are not servants of the common things of this world, but of divine mysteries. Servants of divine mysteries. But we have already seen um, these mysteries are the truths that are revealed in Scripture. 
Remember back in chapter 2, verse 7, he had said, But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. We preach the word. We're stewards of the mysteries of God. He's just talking about his word. We impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. See, not only are the the ministers of the gospel the the galley slaves of Christ, they're also the head of the household, so to speak. They're to guard the trust. Or as uh, he says to Timothy, and Paul writes to Timothy near the very end of his life, he says this in 2 Timothy, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in, in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Guard the trust, he says to Timothy. Guard the good deposit, the word of God that has been entrusted to you. Guard against false teachers. Be sure that the truth is proclaimed so that, and I've hinted at this already, as Isaiah 61 verses 1 to 3 says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. Proclaim those things. Proclaim the gospel, which brings this. Guard the trust that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Because they are entrusted with the mysteries of God's revelation, ministers are held to a higher standard than other church members. This is the requirement. It's there in verse 2. Look at this. Moreover, it is required of servants or stewards that they be found faithful. The requirement is simple. Faithfulness. He must be proven to be trustworthy. He must teach what the master has commanded and not teach what the master has prohibited. 1 Peter chapter 5, the apostle Peter puts it like this, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Notice that the, the minister is not called to eloquence. He's not called to be wise in the ways of this world. He's not instructed to be an entrepreneur, or as some have said, a a pastorpreneur. He's not called to be successful as the world defines success. He's not to be taken in by church growth schemes. His requirement is faithfulness. Paul has already pointed at this when he wrote of The minister facing God's judgment, really, in chapter 3. He who plants and he who waters are one, he had said. And each will receive his wages according to his labor. He goes on to say that some of that will be burned away. See, the steward will face an eventual 
performance review by the master. Now, there's a lot that falls under the category of faithfulness. There are character qualifications. There are job duties. There are doctrinal requirements. The list could go on. And at this point, we, we really could just stop and read all of Paul's letters to, to Timothy and Titus. As well as some other places, too. These are areas that the church should take seriously. Not only the ministers in the church, the pastors, the elders, but the church should take these things seriously. If his character does not measure up, if he doesn't do the work of prayer and ministry of the word, then the church has a responsibility to confront and even, even possibly remove him. But that's not what Paul is getting at here. Remember, he's confronting the church for picking favorites, which means they were rejecting others. And so at this point, he issues a caution. He's got a caution here in verses 3 and 4. He says this, But with me it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Paul is not unconcerned with his own reputation. In fact, he's defending himself here, and, and he will again. And we know that reputation and esteem among men are good things for ministers. In fact, having a good reputation is the key to their being qualified for ministry in the first place, right? 1 Timothy chapter 3, Titus chapter 1. Well, Paul is concerned with his own reputation and also that of the others here. And he wants to be found faithful. But he doesn't, he doesn't particularly care what certain fickle church members think of him, frankly. That's what he's saying. To make it his mission to please men would actually put him into danger. Galatians chapter 1, verse 10, he writes this. He says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of God, of Christ, he says there. I would not be a servant of Christ. Jesus Christ is the minister's master. Paul isn't, he isn't constantly evaluating his job performance based on complaints against him by immature church members. Instead, he knows that God is the final judge of his ministry. So even if he is personally hurt by this criticism, even if Paul is, is personally offended that they have some evidently have either lifted him up too high on a pedestal or they have discounted him and, and started following other people, even if he's personally hurt by that, he is not going to change his methods, he is not going to change his message unless his master tells him to. And so this caution here is twofold in these verses. First, ministers must not preach so as to be well-liked or popular or to meet the, the felt needs of the congregation. We must be careful to preach the mysteries of God. We must be careful to preach God's word. While at the same time, verse 4 says, we are not off the hook simply because the church isn't our ultimate judge. We have to stand before God as one who will give an account, Hebrews 13 tells us. Secondly, 
The church must be careful not to dismiss a preacher simply because he's not entertaining, simply because he's not funny or engaging or whatever. Rather, is he proclaiming the word of God? Is he faithful to the scriptures, both in word and in deed, in what he says and in what he does? Is he faithful? We must be very careful in judging others because as verse 5 says, Therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. The judge will bring all of our secret thoughts to light, both yours and mine. Think about that. The judge will bring all of our secret thoughts to light, yours and mine. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 to 13 actually gives us some hope here. It says this, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. How in the world is that hope? Because the one to whom we must give an account is gracious and merciful. Because the one to whom we must give an account is abounding in steadfast love. Because the one to whom we must give an account is forgiving. Because the one to whom we must give an account went to the cross, died for our sins. By his stripes we are healed. Paul is confident in Christ. Paul is confident in the work that God, Christ, specifically has called him to. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. To proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to weary sinners. To remind those who are God's children that you are, in fact, a child of God. To those who have repented of their sins, that there is therefore now no condemnation. As Christians, and even as ministers, we are called to remain faithful and leave the outcome to the Lord. Right there at the end of verse 5, it says this, Then each one will receive his commendation from God. There will come a time when we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And for those who have trusted in him, do you know what he will say? Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the rest of your master. We long for that day. Pray with me. Father, may, um, may those who come behind us find us faithful. Faithful in our trust of you. 
faithful in our service to you, not because we feel obligated, not because we're trying to earn uh, your uh, favor, but we serve you, Lord, because you have first loved us. We serve you, Lord, out of grateful hearts. So, Lord, I pray that as the days grow longer, as the news gets more and more bleak, even this week being reminded of what happened 20 years ago, which brings up memories of what happened in Pearl Harbor, which brings up memories of all kinds of calamities, evil and violence. Lord, we are reminded that the ultimate violence was done toward the one who was completely innocent. I pray that our eyes would not move to the left or to the right off of our Savior, but that we would remain faithful, that those who come behind us would find us faithful. And so, Lord, as we come to the table this morning to proclaim Christ's death until he returns, we can only... We can only come with gratefulness, with thankfulness, and rejoicing, and also an eager expectation for his return. Father, we praise your name this morning, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.